Hey there, boys and girls. It's Ralph Garman, and you're listening to Talking Codswallop. Good choice. Hello, everybody. This is Ming Chen from AMC's Comic Book Man. You might know me from the Tell Him Steve Day podcast and the I Sell Comics podcast. Listen, I love podcasting. I love talking, but what I really love doing is talking Codswallop. Hey, I'm Alicia Witt. I'm Daniel Portman from Game of Thrones. I play Podrick Payne. I'm Ellipses, and you're listening to the talking... Okay. <laughs> I'm Mark Bernard, and you're listening to the Talking Codswallop Podcast. Hey, man, it's Kevin Smith, Silent Bob, whose voice you were never used to hearing in the 90s until I started opening it up, man. And that's because I'm a podcaster, and you're listening to a podcast, Talking Codswallop, right here, man. Welcome to this week's Talking Codswallop. I'm Gemma. I'm James. And this is actually just the two of us this episode because we're doing a little intro to a fantastic interview that James got. <laughs> so do you want to, well, probably the listeners will be able to tell who the person is because that's what the title of the episode is going to be. But did you want to give a little backstory on how and who you interviewed, you know, mm. how it all came to be? Well, how and why it all came about, I obviously was very, very lucky to be able to sit down and talk to Neil Innes, yep. who is a musician, an actor, a composer, and an all-round damn genius, if I'm honest, an incredibly intelligent man. As we'll become aware, you know, become apparent when you listen to the episode, obviously Neil has been involved with lots of different people. He's, you know, he's done work with the Beatles. I mean, who, who can really ever say they've done that? Yeah. Very, very few people. The Monty Python crew. And for people of my age, um, and Gemma's age, he will be known from his involvement with things like the Raggy Dolls. Yes, indeed. It was one of my favourite programmes growing up. Which was all his big creation. So the, I've obviously always liked his stuff, but the big thing I was there for is a uh, to discuss with him and see him perform with the Ruttles, who are a parody group he created with one Mr. Eric Idle and uh, Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live, and they are a parody of the Beatles. So they're sort of basically like, what would happen if the Beatles didn't happen? initially and the Ruttles, a uh, very similar band to the Beatles, were created. Um, and Neil wrote all the music himself. He did all of his own memory. So with regards to the Ruttles, they're not a tribute band to the Beatles then? Not at all. They are their ah. own entity. They're their own complete entity. They are a parody of the Beatles. Ah, okay. Because um, that's what I was... I, I thought that that's what they were, but... Oh, okay, cool. No, the, the amazing thing with the work that Neil did with the Ruttles, with writing all the songs, is he went off his own memory and basically composed something that was similar to a Beatles song, but it's like an entirely different version of it. It's, ah, okay. So he's oh, created music, yeah. So the my, like my favourite Ruttles song is called uh, Get Up and Go, which is their version of Get Back by the Beatles. Ah, okay. Ah, oh, brilliant. I'm learning learning yeah. new things because, to be honest, I never I hadn't heard of them beforehand. So um, this is like the first I'm hearing about 
the rattles. So um, other than you've mentioned them previously, they sound quite interesting. They're an amazing thing because you're hearing something that's a lot of the time incredibly funny and incredibly close to the Beatles, but isn't. Yeah. So their version of help is called Ouch. <laughs> that's clever. But how I first ever became aware of, uh, obviously I became aware of Neil through seeing the, the Regidols show. I became aware of the Ruttles through seeing things and seeing the film, The Ruttles, All You Need Is Cash. Uh, obviously, which is, you know. <laughs> You're um, the opposite to love, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, how we actually came about on finding about the gig is there's a quite a lovely story behind it because my father came to see me and it was his birthday. And he'd found an advertisement for it in the newspaper. Mm. And just said, how about we go and see this? This will be really interesting stuff. And I was really up for seeing this. So we we got the tickets. Uh, not expecting that we'd be able to get them. Because they pretty much all sold out very quickly, as I understand it. But I found Neil on Twitter and sent him a message. Expecting no response to it at all. Because Neil you know, is a very busy and very, you know important guy mm-hmm. just sort of said i'm going to see you it's going to it's a sort of like a present for my birthday could we ever sit down and have a chat thought nothing of it and about i think a day or two later no yeah i got a tweet back saying not a problem come and see me wow you know serious wow because this guy is you know he doesn't have to do that no not at all but it's good that i think that's good isn't it you know he probably felt as though he was giving a little bit little bit back as well. Yeah. Later on, I, te- I tweeted him, sorry, another time and just said, would it be possible, you know, let, let's have we arrange a time to do it? And he just said, you know, to avoid issues, try and turn up early and, um, you know, paraphrasing, try and turn up early. Mm-hmm. And if we need to alter it, we'll alter it. So the funny part is when I turned up, it was a, a place called Gorilla in Manchester, which I would recommend to anyone who's in the area. It's a, a, a restaurant come um, gig area. Okay. Really nice area. Food seems really nice, and the staff are exceptionally helpful. So we turn up, my father and I turned up, and we go in and we're saying, right, we're here to drink to Neil Innes. And the guy says, right, tell tell one of the, the managers, so we tell one of the managers, who then sends out somebody who's involved with PR. The funny element was this, so we're sat having a drink at the bar, and it was really cool watching things unfold, because people come out and say, well, who are you, what are you here for? So I explain the situation. And you'll be proud of me, Gemma. I handed out the Codswallop card to a lot oh, of people. Good lad. Yeah, he's learning, people. He's learning. <laughs> and various people coming out asking questions. And then Neil's manager came out. And he said, so who are you? Why are you here? So I explained. He said, what are you representing? So I said, I'm here because of the, you know, for the Talking Codswallop podcast. I spoke to Neil and said we're okay to chat. So I told him a bit more about Talking Codswallop and how we are an international, you know, we listen to internationally and what yeah. we discuss. Um, and he said, right, I'll go. But he said, uh, I'll go and, you know, speak to Neil. I said, but when was the last time you spoke to him? What did we say? What did you say? So I said, well, I spoke to him two days ago. And, I'm going to be honest. I had a slight moment where I thought, I wonder if this isn't going to be, isn't going to happen, whether he'll be too busy and he just won't be able to see me. So I yeah. thought either way, something could happen. Neil's manager goes backstage, comes out within about three minutes and says, come on, not a problem. So me and my dad go through and he was stood there and I was astounded because he's, you know, he said, I'm very sorry that you've had to wait. Da, da, da. That's you know, so I shook his hand and said, no problem, Mr. Innes. And we went upstairs and got on with the interview. And he is, and I'm not saying this, you know, in any sort of 
humorous manner. You're in the presence of greatness with him. It was phenomenal listening to his story and what an incredibly nice man he is, an incredibly intelligent man as well. And I can't thank him enough for taking the time to speak to me. And I think it's very interesting to hear about what he's done and what his future plans are. He's got an album that's going to be coming out later on this year. And yeah, I just can't thank him enough for it. And I hope the listeners will get the same kick that I did from speaking to him. Because obviously I've listened to parts of it. I haven't listened to the whole lot, but it is a very well-conducted interview, as always, with you. But also, yeah, very interesting. So you, you did a grand job, James. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, th- and the big thing again, thank you to Neil. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. And there is going to probably be a... Well, there's not probably... There will be a second part of this at some point, which is how... At the event, at the concert, the gig, whatever you want to call it, I uh, was sort of watching people dancing and having fun. And there was a little stall in the corner selling merchandise. And my father pointed out to me, he said, have you seen the girl on the merchandise stall? I said, because uh, we'd, we'd, I think we'd taken a picture. Yeah, taken a picture of the merchandise stall. And I'll be putting the pictures out there for people to look at through through Cod's Wallop. Well, hopefully not literally. <laughs> not through Cod's Wallop, literally, no. But, you, know, you know what I mean. Hey, through social media, yeah. That's the stuff, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we'd taken pictures of the stall and uh, stall hole, the stall, the, the girl running the stall. My dad was there. We were watching the music. He said, have you seen the girl in the stall? She really does like the ruffle because she was really dancing along and singing and having a really good time, as was everybody there, but she was really enjoying herself. So... Went had a, a word with her and at the inter, the intermission, uh, or whatever you would call it, and I said, uh, I explained talking Codswell up to her, and I said, is there any chance I'd be able to have a chat with you about what you do? Uh, and I was lucky enough to be able to uh, set up a Skype with her to talk to her, because one of the other things that happened is the whole thing finished, and I was able to get pictures with the band. Uh, and the Ruttles as a group did something which, the security staff themselves said you very, very rarely ever see people going this far for people. They basically took the time to spend about an hour making sure everybody who wanted to have a picture with them could have a picture. Everybody who wanted to get something signed could get something signed. And they were just great talking to people. And the only other person recently I've seen go to that sort of level after an event was Kevin Smith. Where they actually really, really do take the time to make sure that everybody was happy and able to have a chat and have a picture. And that again was brilliant because they must have been at, well, I know certainly they were feeling tired because my dad was having a chat with Neil Innes. Uh, Neil was saying he was tired because if you think they've spent what, maybe nearly two hours performing and spending all the time afterwards with people. And again, just so good. All of them, just so, so good and so nice. Yeah, and it's good in that sense as well because it creates memories for the people in the crowd, but at the same yeah. time, it's also creating good feedback as mm. well, isn't it? So, so like, next time that they're performing, you know, the crowd's going to possibly get bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah. Bigger and bigger venues. Uh, that's the only downside, isn't it, when it's bigger and bigger venues? Mm-hmm. So, But I, I, without a doubt, would see them again. And I would say, if anyone can find it, from the 1970s, the, uh, the film All You Need Is Cash. And it is, I think, yeah, the 70s are going into the 80s, but I'm pretty sure it's the 70s. 
And if you can find it, which you will, you'll be able to find it online. You can, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you're an old person like me, you, you will buy a DVD of it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Just in case this is the first episode that you're listening to, James is actually only 37. This he sounds true. like he's older, but he isn't. He's only 37. <laughs> uh, I sound older because life has crushed me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I actually had that feedback. Somebody turned around to me and was like, how old is James? And yeah. I was like, oh, he's about 37. 37 you know sort of age <laughs> really <laughs> i was like yeah yes. <laughs> he's he's old and wise yeah <laughs> like an owl um <laughs> yes like owl <laughs> yeah um but yeah i would certainly say just if you can when the next on tour for anyone who listens to give you an idea of how unique sort of the spread or uh multi-aged or whatever you want to call the spread there was a kid who was in the audience who was maybe what 10 oh wow maybe a little bit older who was there listening to the stuff there were quite a lot of people who were sort of in their 20s there and it's just yet yeah, if you want a lesson in great music and amazing compositions go onto neil's website and look for for what he's done you will not be disappointed yeah i might actually reach out to him on twitter and ask him if you wouldn't mind me playing a song at the end of the episode maybe so mm-hmm. But well, if if that happens, he said yes. If it doesn't happen, he hasn't got back to me, mm-hmm. or or potentially has said no. But I, you know, I imagine that it's probably the latter that he's not got back to me. But I just thought so that you know, like to give the audience a bit of a an idea on how they sound as well. But obviously, there is the social media ways of finding out as well. There is. Yeah. So shall we get on with the interview then? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, just before we do as well, I think there was actually a special guest as well that you failed to mention. There was. I mean, you've mentioned him. You said that your wonderful father made an appearance, didn't you? Yeah. My wonderful father, who was good enough to come to the event with me. I mean, that is a bit of the fact he loves the Ruttles and Neil Innes himself, but he was... Very good, and he came upstairs while we were doing the interview. He was sat with us, but he's our, he's a the special guest for this Codswallop episode. As he, <laughs> yeah. uh, you'll hear him speaking to uh, to Neil about things that he remembers in life and questions. What you'll also find is that my father and I have the same voice. Oh, <laughs> so while I'm editing, I'll be like, "Is that James? Yeah. Or what's your dad's name? John." John. Yeah. Well, John, if you listen to this episode, hello, John. Nice to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for being a, your, uh, thank you for being our special guest this week. You know, Sod Neil and Innes, <laughs> you know, we had John Stafford. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, if you're listening, I don't really mean that. <laughs> we love you all. We love all the people who are involved in this, this uh, episode. I mean, you're saying that you love yourself there, but okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a bit bullshit, isn't it? <laughs> Ooh, look at me, I'm James, I love myself. <laughs> Couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, this seems like a good place to actually play the interview then. So again, well done for getting it, James. It was an absolute pleasure talking to the man. So yeah, thank you, Neil. It doesn't come much bigger when you're looking at somebody who is what they consider somebody who's a multi-talented artist. Uh, in the shape of the person I'm going to speak into now, which is Neil Innes, who basically is, I think they call these it multi-talented threat or something when you're covering all these different But everyone always forgets the ice hockey. I'm brilliant at ice hockey. So 
Obviously, one of the things you start out doing is obviously working with regard to music. I mean, you, you compose, you act, you do all these things. Did you come from a musical family initially? How did... Uh, well, I got piano lessons at the age of seven, and I took to it, you know, and I was playing Chopin polonaises and things like that. By the time I was 14, though, I sort of said, hang on, who am I working for? Every time I learn a piece, they give me a harder one. So I got a really nasty second-hand guitar, started playing that, and I thought, this is difficult and whatever, and I realized I got a really bad guitar. It wasn't until I saw someone with a good one that I realized mine was more like a boiled egg slicer. You know, my fingers are, you know. So anyway, I, I'm a rudimentary guitarist. But no, no, I mean, I, but my first love was painting. You know, I went to art school and, uh, and it was there. I met um, other people, you know, at the Bonzos, and, and they needed a pianist, and, and I learned more about musical composition from playing chord sheets, which I'd never played before. And it was just fun, you know what I mean? So I've been addicted to fun ever since that those days, you know. So, I mean, and I'm not ambitious, I'm not showbiz. I've just been incredibly lucky sort of like bumping into people and saying, oh, this is a good idea, let's go and do that. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is obviously one of the big sort of first sort of films you went into and worked in was the Magical Mystery Tour. So it's like no, it's like a serious no pressure moment. No, no, actually it wasn't a lot really? of pressure because it was just so easy. You know, I mean, it's um, it's an art school film. Let's face it. I, mean, I always liked it. You know, well, I, I, I really do. Well, like it. you know, I've never seen it till. They re-showed it on the BBC. Yeah. Yeah, well, they cleaned it up. They cleaned it up. I know. I mean, I I understood it because I'd seen films like Louis Bunuel, Jean Andalou, you know, the Andalusian pooch, as we used to call it. And um, so, you know, I went into it. But, I mean, when we... The Bonzos were so busy, uh, we could only do them one day. We couldn't go on the bus swatting about all over the place. So we did the one day in the strip club, and um, and that's when we met all of them. You know, Paul was in charge directing and things like that. But John and Ringo were sort of sat down there with little Bolex clockwork 16mm cameras. And the, the, the camaraderie of, you know, people who've been in a van and getting up and playing rock and roll is instant, you know. There's no side, there's no bullshit, you know, you just go to, so I go over and say, well, what are you doing? We're doing the Weybridge version, you know. It's just, it's just, it wasn't stressful at all. So it didn't, I mean, that is really refreshing to see that it didn't hit you as sort of a pressure thing. It's literally something you did as just so pure enjoyment. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I, that thing has been my philosophy pretty much all the way through. While we're doing the Ruffles now live, it's not a career move. You know, the the philosophy is have fun and try not to lose money. <laughs> so you were saying about the, the Bonzo band. How did that, what's the genesis of that? How did that all start? Well, you kind of have to kind of imagine what it was like, you know, being sort of just about 20-something. In the 60s, you know, your parents had been through a world war. The economics were improving hand over fist, and Macmillan had said you never had it so good. And but it just happened, you know. It became like a trendy thing amongst people to go and find these um, these old wind up seventy eight gramophone things. And um, at the every Tuesday night in the Royal College of Art canteen, about fourteen people would get together, and they'd have searched out daft old records. Um, usually, you know, because you didn't know what they were until you bought them and took them home. 
Um, you, you relearn to look for the stupid titles. You know, I'm going to bring a watermelon to my girl tonight. I'm interested. You know, I can't buy it. It's only threepence or something. And um, so you do it, and then you say, "I found this one. I found this one." And so we'd all play these things very enthusiastically. Now that was in South Kent, but I was living in Blackheath, which is near Greenwich. And Vernon Dudley Bohay Noel, who who introduced me to the others. Um, because they hadn't got a pianist. Um, we used to drive up in his car every week, and it was a bit of a schlep, you know, to go from south-east London to Kensington. And um, so we found this pub called The Bird in Hand in Forest Hill. It was an enormous room, and there's no one in it. We said to the barman, you know, do you mind if our band plays in here? He said, no, oh, I don't mind, you know, might as well. You know, it was like the Marie Celeste, you know. So... We, we, we turned up and then we just started playing and the pub filled up within an hour and it was heaving at the end and the landlord said well can you come back next week and said do you mind if we pass the hat round you know because we're all starving students she said no no here's 25 quid you know so that's how it started and one pub led to another and we were playing about five pubs a week you know by the time we left art school and we'd already got the kind of reputation and so we never felt uh, we had to change anything. You know, we, we in the Easter holidays, in our, our final year, we got uh, contracted to come up to Newcastle and we played a, a, a club in Newcastle and one in Sunderland the same night. So we had to pack everything up. We did 45 minutes. We had an exploding grandfather clock, <laughs> shovel it all out, put it in the back of the van, race over to Sunderland, do it all again. And we thought, well, this is a bit of a laugh. And and, and that, it was so successful that they, for when we finished college, we had six weeks of it. So we did six weeks of that, and, and then the, before the end of that, there was another six weeks book. We suddenly we found ourselves on this treadmill, and uh, and we we learned things like you know if you did something offensive, you could get paid off. So we used to try and get paid off. And, and, and Viv, <laughs> we didn't know what it meant. We, uh, we thought it meant, you've been offensive, here's the money for the week, yeah. now go, never darken our towels again. Um, <laughs> Viv used to come out and say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The next time I say good evening, I'd like you all to shout balls. <laughs> You'd come out and go, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. They go, balls! You know, and, and nothing. And management said, yeah, well, keep that in, lads. Got a terrific laugh, you know. Well, you know, but, but it didn't work for everybody because this comedian we kept bumping into, he, he turned up and he said to me, Hey, Vivian, you know that thing where you say good evening and they all shout balls? Yes. So I tried that in Jarrow and I got paid off. <laughs> but, you know, we were, we, we were at the ante. And with the, the counterculture to show business, because people put on shiny jackets and singing duets, and you know, <laughs> we were just having a rip time, you know. And it was you sort of slid into what my next question was going to be, because you talk about the idea of this, this, you know, people wearing the shiny jackets and yeah. things, which is a big sort of thing that you saw mocked with Python, and you obviously were involved with Python. I was going to ask if you could... Yeah, but how did, how did that Pyth Python that? were only echoing what was going on yeah. in the real so-called showbiz world, you know, the, the, the sort of shiny slashes, and it's all eyes and teeth. It hasn't changed. still hideously awful. You know, what they do, and they, you know, it's all 
part of the wider picture of you know the mainstream media people farming you know their business model is to deliver crowds to people who pay for them you know i mean it's getting more sinister as we go on but uh in those days you know uh so python would put on a, a, a for the lumberjack song and michael would come out and sort of rip it off and he'd be a lumberjack you know so it was that kind of a wacky thing we all grew up with the goons the radio show the goon show so we were used to sort of kind of surrealism and the general mood of our generation was to cheer our parents up you know my mother used to wear a headscarf like the queen you know come on cheer up you know <laughs> it's well, i remember just bringing my dad cause you were you were saying about things like the way your she grandmother would have dressed wouldn't she she still dressed yeah. as this like very austere victorian style clothing well no not Victoria, well, quite, no, but... You're the, saying, my grandmother in Manchester, well, she dressed all in black. Come on over here, Dad. Come on, you should be in it. John, my dad. I, don't I remember you right. This is, this is John, my dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he played outside left for Accrington Stanley. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, obviously, with Python, though, I mean, you, you were involved with the tea, the tea, some of the TV work, but I, I want to ask for a big memory for one of my all-time favourite films, which is the whole, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, yeah. What was the experience like working on that? Because, I mean, it looked completely bonkers and zany. Well, the, the dark thing was, I mean, well, just spooling back a bit, you know, um, the Bonzos were invited to, to make this children's television show with Michael Payne and Terry Jones, Eric Idle, Denise Coffey, David Jason, and in the second series, Terry Gilliam. So this was like a rehearsal for Python. And so that's how it all, you know, got together. And I, I get, became seconded to Python, and when Holy Grail came out, and it's the only script I've ever got through the mail, you know, I sort of laid on the sofa and started reading it. And I got got to the bit about the Black Knight, and I soon found I was on the floor, slapping the floor, crying with laughter, you know, from a script. So that, that that it was funded, and I think it cost seventy five thousand pounds. So you know, it, even you know, it's a low budget. Mm. <laughs> so we couldn't have horses. So you, you do coconuts. You do you do kids playing in the sandpit jokes, and and you know, just clever writing. And uh, and it was a hoot. Yeah, but I mean, Terry Gilliam and I were both art students, and the rest are all sort of Oxbridge you know, wordy people, and uh, we, we art students, you know, scare them a bit. So, you know, we know, got them on. in my particular case, anything heavy catapulted out of the castle landed on me. You know, so, you know, they're so insecure, these wordy people. <laughs> you have to hit yourself in the face, didn't you? With the, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Was that real impact? <laughs> no, I'm a bloody good actor. <laughs> we put the sound on afterwards. <laughs> um, so, obviously, the and the, the the big thing we're here for today is the ruffles. So, the question... Well, if you could just tell me a bit about how you started with that, where the well, idea... Yeah. So it was like a combination, wasn't it, of yourself, uh, I think... Uh, yeah. uh, was it... Did George Harrison come in initially on that? Uh, or was let me, that, let me uh, get to the... You know, yeah. to do it chronologically, because I was touring with Python by then. We were doing live shows, and we did four weeks at Drury Lane. And it was at Drury Lane that Eric said to me, do you fancy doing some television with me? And my memories of television was do not adjust your set. The bonds is on the road. What are we going to do? I don't know. The last minute, turn up, do something. And the camera's never pointing anywhere. So I said, well, I'm not sure I'm that keen on television there, actually. He said, why? And I said, because you know, cameras never you know, point where you want them and things like that. He said, well, you can tell the cameras where to point. 
I went, oh, oh, this is different, you know. All right, tell me more. And it was, you know, he was, you know, cashing in, if you like, on the the, the way that British television was all the independent companies had to bid for a franchise. And the franchises were sort of coming up. And um, so he thought he'd put in a bid for Rutland, the smallest county in in England, the Rutland Weekend Television. Therefore, it wouldn't have much money, so all the budgets would be like Holy Grail. And the BBC Two loved it. You know, cheap television, all right. It was a bit of a python thrown in. So they went for it. And um, my job was to sort of come up with musical ideas. And he wrote sketches. He's, of the pythons, he always wrote on his own anyway. And so we'd meet every week or so and, um, and, and, and write down, well, what have you got? And I said, well, remember, it's got to be cheap. And a cheap musical idea, I thought, would be a spoof of A Hard Day's Night. Because it's black and white and speeded up, you know, four guys in wigs, tight trousers, running around a field, cheap. So I had this song with an interesting middle eight. And we, you know, I said, let's do A Hard Day's Night. And he said, great, because I've got... Uh, an idea for a documentary maker who's so boring the camera runs away from him. So with those two things were put into Rutland Weekend Television and you'd have thought that would have been it. I certainly thought that it was it. Uh, and then what happens, you know, in life, there's Sid Bernstein in America trying to, you know, coax the Beatles back together again by offering them $20 million each and a killer whale as a pet, you know. And Saturday Night Live, the satirical program over there on NBC, were, were running with the gag of trying to get the Beatles back together again. They got George Harrison on, and Lorne Michaels, the producer, was waving a wad of $3,000 under his nose, which is the fee for four musicians in the studio. <laughs> And said, all this can be yours, George. Just get the guys back together. And George is doing terrible acting deliberately. He says, what? All of this for me? And he snatches it back and says, no, no, you have to share it with the other guy. Maybe you don't have to tell Ringo. They were, they were, they were doing these jokes. And so um, it's, uh, the next thing Luan says, well, well, we're happy to announce we've got Eric Idle to come and host next week's show because he says he can get the Beatles together for $300. <laughs> so they spin it out, spin it out, spin it out. And and then eventually, well, eventually the time has come and we've just um, heard from Eric. We, we were worried, you know, but it was a bad line and we couldn't be sure. But anyway, apparently he hasn't got the Beatles together. He's got the Ruttles. So they showed the clip from the BBC and, and the audience at Saturday Night Live just went ballistic and wanted to play as well. <coughs> and they all wrote in and they, some even sent Beatles albums in with Beatles crossed out, Ruttles written there. And it took, took long 20 minutes to go downstairs to the money people and come with the whole budget, which became the Ruttles All You Need Is Cash. And I'm sitting there on a the windowsill, so any minute now I know what they're going to say. And they, they're going to all excited, you know, we're doing the whole story. You know. Oh, uh, Neil, do you think you can write 30 more <laughs> Russell songs by next Thursday lunchtime? You know, so that's what I was, you know, and I said, well, I'll try. And, and but I, I got a following wind. I, I instinctively knew um, I shouldn't listen to any Beatles tracks, songs. I thought, well, where was I when I heard that? Where was I? What was life? You know, and I took my existence, you know, in, in like triangulation, if you like of um, where the Beatles song was and what was happening and what I, and, and, and I tried not to uh, demean them in any way you know so it was a labour of love and, I, and the other rule uh, if I can sing it to someone on a guitar or a piano and it's it's doesn't 
doesn't rely on any kind of trickery or anything like that. It's a song. So they had to be songs. And once we got the songs, then, uh, you know, um, Ollie Holsall, John Holsey, who's here tonight, and Ricky Fatar, who... Um, um, Eric had end- appendicitis. Not that, you know, you can play the guitar a bit, but we had to get on with it, you know. Uh, so the four of us, we, we went into this little semi-detached house in Hendon, North London, with a bloke called Alistair and two two-track reboxes, and we just rehearsed it for a fortnight. And we came out like a band. I went into the studio, and uh, it took ten days. It's almost like the joke. Wow. The whole whole thing. It's the only thing in the movie under budget. It is. I know. I know. But as I say, we had a following wind. Everybody kind of knew what to do. And uh, it was a great game for a lot of children to play in the same sandpit and bring bring their toys. You know. And did you have any concerns about? I mean, it's it, people see it as sort of like a parody of the Beatles. Were there any concerns from you about that? How it'd be received by well, the Beatles? Well, we got to say, you know, George Harrison was absolutely gung ho on this. You know. Um, Eric and I are already kind of friends with him, and um, he used to turn up to things. Um, and he was—he was of all the Beatles. He—he he really wanted to sort of like put the suits in the cupboard and move on, you know. And so, given that the, the world was heartbroken over the Beatles not being together anymore, it's a big gap. And uh, this looked like a funny way of doing it. So, our rule, our game plan was. We pretend the Beatles didn't exist at all, and we are the ones. <laughs> and, it, and, and George went and got people like Mick Jagger and Paul Simon to come down and tell real stories, but change the names. <laughs> so it became a, a just you couldn't you couldn't um, put it in as a proposal. It, you know, it, it just happened. Do you know, and that's what made it good. And George got all this uh, extra footage from Neil Aspinall, Apple. And that cut in with Gary Weiss, who's the man who did all the little filming for Saturday Night Live. Genius. You know, dungarees. You know, Bolex camera on his hip or on his shoulder. You know, it was shot really quick. Documentary stuff. You know. And one of the things you, uh, following on from that, you also had your own, your own TV series, didn't you? Which yeah, was well, three years it ran. Uh, yeah. Three series, is that correct? Yeah. How did that all come about? Well, uh, it came about through Rutland Weekend Television. The producer, Ian Keel, um, really enjoyed putting pictures to music, you know, because no one was really doing it. It was pre-videos. And uh, he, he rang up one day and said, you know, I'd, I'd like to do a kind of Rutland Weekend songbook. Obviously, we can't call it that. But, you know, putting pictures to music. I said, that sounds good. Let's, let's have lunch, talk about it. And um, we, we we had lunch and talked about it, and I said, "Well, I don't want to do a showbiz show. I'd rather have it, you know, evoke the interlude, you know, where, where people could sit down and relax and not not know what's coming next, you know." And um, and he thought that, that suited him, uh, so he he sort of said, well, "We could call it the Innis Book of Records." So I went, "Oh no, 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 no! Can't call it that, you know." So and on the way home on the taxi. I had one of the earliest um, mobile phones, and it suddenly occurred to me, I know what we'll call it. I phoned him from the taxi. Ian, I've got our title. He said, oh, what's that? He said, Parodies Lost. 
parodies. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, very good. I knew he didn't like it. <laughs> but anyway, we we get filming yeah. on it, and, and I'm halfway up a hill in Somerset, dressed as that you know character from Cabaret, Joel Grey character. When an elderly couple come up the hill and say, "What are you doing?" and they say, "Oh, we're making a film for BBC Two." Said, uh, "What's it called?" And I go, "Parodies Lost." Beg your pardon. Parodies Lost. You see, Parodies Lost, not Parodies. Well, anyway. I said, well, good luck. And they wandered off, and I thought, oh, I think he's right, you know. <laughs> and then we got back to the, um, the hotel where we were staying, and I saw a can of film, and they were wrapped camera tape around the film, and they write what on, you know. And someone had written Paroids Lost. And I said, okay, I give in. In this book of records, it is. But it was Ian Keel's idea to put the music thing. And that's what we both agreed over that lunch. It should be music and pictures about people and things. And, and if anybody uh, isn't, you, you've, got, you've got to, if anyone thinks what they know is coming next, we failed. You know, it's got to just keep coming and be interesting, you know, and human scale, Laurel and Hardy sort of thing. And one of the, uh, well, there are two things that I really want to sort of say thank you for from my childhood. I mean, the Ruttles is a big thing I love, but it's the fact that you were Raggy Dolls. Oh, which is yeah. a huge, huge thing from my childhood that I remember. Uh, and the, uh, was it Tales from the Puddle it was called no, no, as Puddle well? Lane. Puddle Lane, sorry, yeah, sorry, no, Puddle no, Lane. I mean, yeah, I, I was at art school with a lovely lady who became a producer at uh, Yorkshire Television who put me in touch with a bloke who sort of thought I'd be good to do uh, Puddle Lane, a ladybird reading scheme. And... And I thought, well, yeah, why not? My little boy was three. And you take an interest in, you know, in fact, they'd done it all carefully. Every sentence made sense in itself. You know, you didn't break a sentence, and, you know. So I thought, yeah, why not? And similarly, uh, another producer, Joy Whitby, sort of said, uh, asked me to do the book tower, present the book tower. And I thoroughly enjoyed doing that. And he said, well, I've got this thing, this, this uh, program called Raggy Dolls they're all you know imperfect you know rejects mm-hmm. and I said well that sounds a nice thing to yeah. you know do for t- children good message so I, I, I threw myself wholeheartedly into children's television I thought it was more grown up than grown up television <laughs> I couldn't understand all these people in sharp elbows trying to run away from children's television not run away from use it as a springboard to get into so called adult television you know but I mean I loved it I, I, and I I think Puddle Lane had about something like 112 episodes altogether and they all had had to have a beginning middle and end and I pompously got on my high horse which I hardly ever do but uh, the you know I said the, well the stories you've got to be about something you know after you get to sort of episode 80 you think what about the and the, I'd be sitting around the meal times with glum children said well what else can they do well, they could go to the circus. We've done that. You know. <laughs> and what was the recording process like when you were doing uh, Ranky Dolls? How, how, how was all, that all well, set up? I wrote the scripts first, and then we went into just record, read them, you know, and I'm, because it's only me, and I'm doing all the voices and things like that. And they get something they're happy with, and they take it to the animator. Uh, and that's it, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's lovely. It's a lot of people. I mean, I'm really quite proud of the fact that you know, after you know, obviously it went on for several years, uh, but towards the end, this 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 woman wrote in saying, "My little daughter started watching it when she was two and a half. 
She's now six and a half. She's autistic. And this is the only thing that she pay attention to. And over the years, we've used it. And now she's doing this and doing that. You know. And I thought, well, that's... That's a brilliant thing to hear, isn't it? It's not bad at all, you know. And I, I wrote to her, I said, well, look, you've got grown men at Yorkshire Television snivelling into their hankies, you know. But they sent all the raggy dolls to this little girl and everything like that. See? I don't know. It's a... Yeah, it's a they're all, you know, it's a good message. It's basically a good. I didn't have the idea. Melvin Jacobson had the idea, but he just had the idea, and he couldn't take any further. He didn't write. So, but I, again, you know, it's not planned. You just, um, you just lucky enough to sort of be there at the time when it happened to do, it. and I really wanted to do it. Brilliant. And I wanted to also ask you: we're in a film called Eric the Viking. Which had, you know, had a couple of the Pythons in. It also had yeah. a woman who turned out to be future Miss Money Penny in the shape of her Samantha Bond. But you also did the music, and you had a, a role in that. How how did that all come about? How was that process, please? Well, being friends with all the Pythons and Terry Jones and whatnot, and uh, I always begged him to do. I said, I want to do film music. I think that's really good fun. So he he, he gave me the the opportunity to do the music for Eric the Viking. And I did lots and lots of things at home of synthesizing things like that. And um, it's almost... How can I put this? You know, I, you've got to remember, uh, Terry, idea of music sometimes is to sit na- naked on an organ going, Yardy, buckety, things, bang, for two. You know... And at one point, I'd written this really stunning stuff, you know, that John Williams would have been envious of. Uh, he said, Neil, do you think take the tune out of it? I said, take the tune out of it, but we, we, but we got it done, you know, and the film went through several cuts. And, the, and the, I was doing this epic battle thing, you know, for about seven minutes. You know, and, and the, something about British film dubbing, you know, someone's got a line. They dub the music now, which is pointless, you know, if it's supposed to go through there. You have better have he's shouting the line, He's mad but no. They go duck, he's mad And it's like the Python radio play. All this sword play and shouting and fighting as Are you Mary Scott? I am again, you know. So I mean but it's the same it was actually the same with Holy Grail. I the budget for the music and Holy Grail was £12,000. No, it was £3,000. I could have 12 musicians. And I had this lovely theme with two French horns in harmony, which I can't do now, but... But it, it sounded like chamber music, you know. So, you know, everyone loved it, but he said, no, we've got... We've got if you're having coconuts, <laughs> something's got to be big. Yeah. So they put the, the library music on it. So I think I think I got the Eric the Viking gig out of sympathy for having been cheated on the Holy Grail. <laughs> but we got there in the end, and I just, it worked out. And one of the, the questions I always sort of like to ask people is, if you could do anything, anything else, because, well, 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 let's start again. Obviously, you've, you've had this brilliant career and you know, film, music, etc. What did you want to do when you were a child, though, when you were a real small child? What was it you wanted to grow up and become? Well, I don't know. I've, ever since I could hold a pencil, you know, I've drawn and looked at things. 
and you know, and you reach that stage, and you realise that, hang on, dogs haven't got fingers, you know. Hey, trees have got shadows, you know. And, and it was natural for me to go to art school and look at things, and you actually get the discipline of linking your brain and your hand to what you're looking at. And in many ways, I write songs in the same way. I look at a situation and I think, well, how can I use words to explain that situation in a way that isn't cumbersome? And it actually might even be lyrical. Um, so I've always been fascinated by the craft of songwriting and, and painting. But as things are now with the music business unrecognizable, except for the criminality, uh, the um, it, I may well go back to painting. But I've just done... Uh, a new album of, of 16 songs again you know people say well, what genre you know, it hasn't got a genre there's songs about things you know think of them like pictures in the gallery and you go around and that's it and whatever it turns out to be that's what it's going to be but it's beautifully played and it's beautifully recorded Steve James who did the Ruffle albums and then his book of records with me I went out to Australia nearly funded by Pledge Music who decided they could do better things with the money but it's, uh, yeah, it's been a hell of a year but yeah. out, of the, out of all that whirlwind the, the album has come out really well I'm really pleased with it there's this lovely girl who was born in Tonga has, has got this wonderful voice which is not exactly like a country voice like Alison Krauss and it's not exactly like a Detroit soul singer but it's somewhere in between mm. you know and she sings harmonies with me on some of the things and great guitarist Warwick Scott uh, Malcolm Foster who is with Simple Minds and Pretenders mm. a really really good drummer called Tony McCall lives in Brisbane absolutely in the pocket all the time and three brass players you know, at their ages together, they're still younger than me. But they they played with such humour and virtuosity. Yeah. They just did it. And so that, and oh yeah, my best, one of my best friends from Sl uh, Slovenia, Bostian Gombak, he's a classical clarinetist. But he basically he can play any piece of plumbing with a, you know. And so he he's put a penny penny whistle on there and a clarinet on another track. So that's about it, you know. Uh, but it's all, it's all come together really well in record time. It had to do because uh, there wasn't the money, you know. But um, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. It's, if it ends up the last album I do like that, you know, then so be it. I, I'm quite happy for it to be. But hopefully it will come out in the next month or so. The artwork is the only thing holding up at the moment. There will be vinyl. Sounds like a sinister true film, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> but um, maybe not until the autumn. But what we're going to do, there's about an hour of stuff. Sorry about the squawking. There's a parrot. Apparently there's a parrot. It's entered the room. Um, so as Mark Twain once observed, she was not what you would call refined. She was not what you would call unrefined. She was the kind of person who kept a parrot. <laughs> Anyway, back to the vinyl. Yes. It'll be a double album thing, so there'll be about 15 and a half minutes on each side, mm -hmm. four sides. And, and, you know, the the grooves will be so deep, you, do, you don't have to wear trousers, you know. This is... Phi doesn't get any higher, folks. What's it called? I'm, I'm going to call it sim, uh, Singularity in the end. I had... I, I, <laughs> what did I, at one stage with all the rubbish going on I nearly called it Nervous Requiem but uh, 
it, singularity does it for me in the end because uh, it has three meanings. One, obviously, the state of being singular. Two, it's the mathematical theoretical center of a black hole. And three, it's the doomsday scenario of artificial intelligence. So, I, you know, I don't know what to call it to describe it. You know, it's a bit like George with the, the chords, you know, is that a minor 15th or whatever it is. He said, I don't care what you call, call it. You can call it Arthur, so long as it sounds good. <laughs> well, I think this may be our time to go, but thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. And we're really looking forward to seeing this evening what you're going to be doing and what you'll be doing in the future as well. So, Neilinus, thank you so much. Thank you, James. Well, thank you for listening to this special episode of Talking Codswallop. I have been Gemma. I've been James. Oh, Randy. <laughs> Andy's, Andy's plastering, so he can't be here this week. <laughs> and feeding the cat. Yeah. No, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. I actually did get a text message from him a second ago saying, I'm, um, I've been plastering. Sorry. I, I haven't responded yet, Andy, but my response to you is going to be, are there any walls left under that plaster? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's been plastering for the last six months, hasn't he? <laughs> well, having never plastered, I can only imagine it's a no. difficult uh, process. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. But, you know, I couldn't have an episode without Andy and not rip on him. So... <laughs> so anyway <laughs> listeners thank you again for listening and uh check us out all on social media you know where to find us at this point but it's at codswallet pod for facebook instagram and twitter and all three of us look after individual accounts we do yeah james looks after our facebook andy looks after instagram because i have no idea what to do on that one and uh and i look after twitter so there's probably the chattiest of uh social media because <laughs> i'm a chatterbox obviously because this was only supposed to be a two second outro and i'm still talking <laughs> oh dear yeah and also leave us a five-star review because i want you to so yeah. pretty please leave us a five-star review yeah and you can find us all through the twitter thing i'm uh if you are interested in finding me to discuss you know neil's stuff in more detail whatever i am uh oh you'll find me at james the voice stafford that's the one and and also i should really give andy's out i suppose oh no sorry he's not on the <laughs> he's not here he'll do it himself he'll be fine <laughs> yeah right again thanks for listening guys you did this with your mouth like you talked yourself into this well if you're interesting at all you should do a podcast i was doing a radio show for years before i podcasted i don't think people realize just how liberating and freeing and inspiring podcasting can be yeah even just walking into to any genre of podcasting you're walking into community the reason podcasts connect so much is it feels more personal what we learn pretty quickly is that only one or two percent of the people who listen ever donate most people don't people are used to free media advertising support media at the moment podcasting for us isn't a business and it's not designed to be a you know running something as a business or being paid doesn't always mean dollars pounds euros it can be payment in another way One voice, 
One Mic, a short documentary about the rise of podcasting, coming 2019. Plug in, record, send it to iTunes, boom, congratulations, you're a podcast.